1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guests today are Aurelien Mondon and Aaron Winter, authors of Reactionary Democracy, How Racism and the Populist Far Right Became Mainstream. We talked about whether Joe Biden's electoral victory last month represents a comprehensive repudiation of Trumpism, what we can expect from the Republican Party after Trump, and we also chatted about the significance of the QAnon conspiracy theory. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books. Until the end of the year, Verso have 40% off all the print books on their website and 60% off all of their eBooks. In this momentous year for politics, they offer titles that help to make sense of the world around us with writing from Judith Butler, Priyamvada Gopal, Angela Davis, Eric Olin Wright, Wolfgang Strake, and lots more. They also launched the Verso Book Club earlier this year, which offers a curated monthly selection of their most critical and urgent reading, as well as access to every ebook that they publish for all members. Their digital tier starts at just £5 per month, and Verso Book Club membership is 50% off for the first three months. Head to versobooks.com to find out more. And now to today's interview. Aurelien Mondon teaches at the University of Bath. He's the author of The Mainstreaming of the Extreme Right in France and Australia, A Populist Hegemony. And he's the co-editor of After Charlie Hebdo, Terror, Racism and Free Speech. Aaron Winter is Senior Lecturer in Criminology at the University of East London. He is co-editor of Discourses and Practices of Terrorism, Interrogating Terror, and of Historical Perspectives on Organised Crime and Terrorism. Together, Aurelian and Aaron are the authors of Reactionary Democracy, How Racism and the Populist Far Right Became Mainstream. So the subtitle of the book that you've co-written is How Racism and the Populist Far Right Became Mainstream. And in detailing the rise of right-wing populism, you analyse a range of examples, including the National Rally in France, formerly the National Front, UKIP and its relationship with the Conservative Party in the UK. But of course, you also wrote about the politics of Donald Trump and, and the confluence of ideological tendencies that flowed into his support base. And obviously, we're talking just a couple of weeks after Donald Trump was defeated at the polls. So it seems clear that although the result was tighter than many of us expected in terms of the electoral college, nonetheless, Joe Biden did win the popular vote very comfortably. And amongst some liberal commentators in the UK, although this seems to be less true in the American context, there seems to be a desire to see the result as a very comprehensive repudiation of Trumpism, even though the election was not the blowout victory that was expected. And even though Trump was able to increase his own vote on his 26th, numbers. So how do you see the result and, and in the long term how much of a defeat for the politics of trumpism do you think this result really
0: was? I mean to start with I don't think trumpism if we can call it that exhausts both our understanding of the far right racism or its mainstreaming. I mean one of the things we are arguing is the way in which illiberal forms of racism more extreme forms can often distract from systemic racism, systemic institutional and structural racism. But at the same time, Trump did represent a mainstreaming of both illiberal racism and the far right. I think that we have to understand that, and we what's happening now with Biden is, yes, Biden does seem to have done that, but the it doesn't foreclose on the gains in which racists racism itself, and the far right have made over this period. And it doesn't undo the damage that was caused. One of the things that's important to note is the way in which the far right either has, in both America and other contexts, has not only gained a foothold within the mainstream, but its ideas have filtered through and become somewhat normalized. And this includes ongoing policies about immigration, ongoing the the discourses which are circulating within even what are so-called legitimate debates about immigration up until recently. I think the issue is, is that Donald Trump simultaneously allowed for and emboldened the far right and, sort of, and racists, but can also prove such an illiberal distraction that racism, and racism can continue in his absence. In fact, it can create the illusion that it's been defeated or that white supremacy has been defeated. But it can also allow for, and we discuss this a lot in the book, about another discursive reconstruction of the far right. That it can, it will adapt. I think the one thing that's important to note, though, and I'll sort of end it there, is that there has been such talk about the threat from extremists should Donald Trump lose. So much attention has been placed on these more extreme illiberal elements that it does become a celebratory moment and Biden wins, but also does mean that people are keeping their eye off the ball.
2: Just to add a little bit on, I think the the that process of diversion, I think is quite interesting here, because this is something we we talk about in, in the book quite a lot. As Aaron said, Trump is the extreme. is he, extreme in his behavior, he's extreme in the politics, he's emboldened in the fact that he's retweeted some really kind of extreme right wing movements and so on and so forth. And I think what what we could see happen now is a kind of reconstruction of a, of a Republicans around a candidate that wouldn't be as extreme. At least superficially as Trump is, but his ideas might be carried on with that new candidate. And I think that would be a big risk. This is something that we discuss quite a lot in the book with the Front National, the, the National Front and the National Rally, and, and the move between Jean-Marie Le Pen and Marine Le Pen, which was heralded by many people, including academics, as, as this kind of modernization. That's that's the time when the Front National becomes mainstream, becomes you know less extreme. But in fact, this is this is not how it happens. You know, the Front National becomes less extreme or it at least normalizes its discourse over 40 years. And so Marine Le Pen is, is not a big shift, a big break. She is just the kind of continuation of this process of normalisation, of reconstruction. And, you know, she's Marine Le Pen. She's she's the daughter of Jean-Marie Le Pen. It's not like there's this massive break that kind of completely moves away from what the party was about. And I, and I think that there's a big risk that we might see something like this in, in the US where a new kind of Republican candidate rises. who You know, he's not quite as extreme on Twitter, who is not quite as hot-headed as as Trump but could be a lot more dangerous because actually that new candidate might be able to actually push some of the policies that Trump was was unable to for, for various reasons so i think that's that's one of the big risks and and that also leads to a risk with with the Democrats at the same time and the talks that we're hearing about reconciliation at the moment, which I think are really, really dangerous, because, of course, I mean, as you said, you know, like Trump has increased his, his, his vote, which is which is really scary when you think about it. But after four years of Trump presidency, people still more people voted for him in 2020 than, than, than did in 2016. Of course, you know, luckily enough, more people voted for Biden than did for Clinton as well. But I think the risk around the the discourse of reconciliation is that, A, it might put off a lot of Democrats who will, you know, who have been at the sharp end of of, of Trump's politics over, over the last four years, but also it might water down what is already a very kind of moderate program by the Democrats. And it might kind of reinforce some of the discourses that Aaron was talking about that have become normalized over the years under Obama, before Trump even, you know, against immigration in terms of foreign policy and so on and so forth. So I think there's a lot of things that that could still go very, very wrong despite Biden moving to the White House.
1: On that point about distraction and and not taking our eye off the ball and and thinking about the way in which so much of the political field, including the Democrats and centrist liberals, that racism and and, and various forms of structural violence are sort of part of their politics as well. Do you think, on the other hand, that there may be a tendency, because the left has this very different politics, and very different agenda, that there can be a tendency to sometimes too much blur together these different ideological tendencies and not always to see the the specificity of them. So I'm thinking of, for instance, the way in which Some people on the left, you'll often see when Trump's peculiar or or unusual qualities are pointed to, will say, well, he's not killed as many people as George W. Bush. And I'm not suggesting that we should get into deciding who is worse, necessarily. I'm not sure that's particularly useful. But if we think about the current moment where we have Donald Trump refusal to concede the election, it does feel like there is some kind of shift here towards parties more associated with perhaps the traditional far right, which are perhaps more comfortable with flouting democratic norms than might be the case, say, with the Republican Party. Of George W. Bush, in spite of the obvious criminality and violence of that administration on the world stage?
2: That's very much the case. And I think that's a clear issue and and something that we're seeing happen in a number of ways. I mean, the first thing that that we should say is that, of course, we should be happy that Trump was defeated and that he will be moving out of the White House. Because I think it's easy to be cynical and to jump into criticism without actually celebrating the fact that this change in the White House is going to change the lives of many, many people. But as you said, we can't take our eyes off the ball at the same time. And I think there's a lot of kind of dangerous paths that we could go down here. And and one of them has been the re-legitimization almost of George W. Bush. And we've heard it during the campaign, you know, with, with Bush being actually quite nice and Bush probably being, you know, anti-Trump and, and various other kind of former Republican candidates being, being anti-Trump and, and being kind of re-legitimized in the eyes of the public through this. And I think, I think we shouldn't compare necessarily the, the two because they're happening at different times, and and I think there's a there's a danger in comparing them. But I think one of the dangers that I've seen, and one of the things that I've seen happening, that we need to be careful with, is rehabilitating kind of former reactionaries like George W. Bush, for example. And this is something that we see again in, in various of the in various countries, and, and in many of the cases we look at in, in in the book. I mean, you could think of of people, you know, in the UK thinking that actually, you know, Cameron was was better than what we have now, that Theresa May was better than what we have now, But and you have this rehabilitation of kind of people who actually were very much disliked for very very good reasons, and you know the same happens on the left as well. And and I think that this process of rehabilitation, I think, is a big worry for me because because I think it it makes us see some really problematic actors, political actors with with very problematic political ideologies in, with rose tinted eyes almost, because again, Trump was so bad in so many ways. And that's where I've become quite wary about the talks about Trump and fascism, in a way, and trying to compare Trump to fascism. I'm not saying there's no fascistic elements in, in, in Trump's politics. And we talk about fascism in the book a little. But I think we need to be careful at in the way we're putting Trump as this kind of exceptional figure and this exceptional moment of politics, while in fact, we should look at him in a, in a more kind of historical way and in a more kind of contemporary way at, at the same time where, where he is the result of, of a, you know, of a series of events and of a series of politics that have led us here rather than this kind of exceptional happenstance, if you want. So I think it's important that we, that we keep all of this in mind.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting example, of the Theresa May one, I think, because obviously it's appalling seeing the rehabilitation of George W. Bush. It's somebody who was in power a couple of administrations ago, whereas Theresa May, you know, it's rehabilitation at warp speed. It's as if she's been out of power for 20 years, and yet it's just a very short time ago that she was in power and overseeing the hostile environment policy and so on.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And, and I, think, I think one of the issues isn't that- merely the the idea that, well, Bush was worse. It's the idea that it's the rehabilitation. It's the idea that Trump is such an exception that politics becomes flattened out prior to him, that everyone becomes part of this at least rational institution or rational process. And they become sort of rehabilitated for their crimes or for any negative critique. I mean, one of the extensions of this is you had this debate as the... On one, side, one hand, you had all these ideas that Trump's defeat was going to lead to riots and mass violence. Then you had other ones that were an, a, a more liberal critique of Democratic presidents, which says things have been so degraded that the election is taking so long. And this is, a, this is an indication of how bad things have become, whereas actually we have historical precedents of, of long contested elections. And it's the construction of Trump as so irrational and everything else is rational, irrespective of its politics and the damage done. And I think that has a parallel and it kind, of, it kind of fits with the idea that you had that Trump is such a threat, we need someone in the center, someone rational to defeat him. And that helped foreclose on a left candidate, what we talk about in the book is the sort of the limiting of the horizons of both sort of democratic politics but also critique and opposition the idea that we need a return to something normal and rational and what's interesting about that is there was a push for the the sensible rational electable biden to defeat trump and thus resuscitate american democracy irrespective of what his policies may be but at the same time of course, as soon as he starts running, he gets called a socialist because that's part of the sort of the ammunition of the culture war. I mean, I think one thing is interesting about this and I'm, I'm, I'm very, as is the book and our sort of discussions about this, very concerned about this sort of the affirmation or reaffirmation of liberal centrism as the only site of opposition when, as we know, and as Aurelian pointed out, opposition to something so extreme and healing the nation, as if the nation's polarization between center and far right is somehow the major division and injustice in in the society. But the way in which it becomes about healing as opposed to addressing systemic inequalities and injustices. And despite that, I would say there are some interesting signs. Like the point that was made about Biden bringing on economists who are well-versed in, and aware of issues of systemic racism and also a discussion that seems to be coming on about relieving student debt and some really interesting sort of like commentary on that and developments there and that's interesting after a, a, a complete overtly white supremacist assault on racialized people but also attacks on higher education. Do you think that those
1: potential bright spots and that potential for a degree of concern amongst the future Biden administration to think about doing something about the the social ills of America, do, do you think that reflects a general developing realism amongst liberals about the challenge they face? Because it seems to me that a lot of the talk that seemed to be arguing that the defeat of Trump was comprehensive and that, that Trump would be seen as a historical aberration seems to be coming out almost entirely from UK commentators. And that perhaps reflects a particular political battle they're fighting here against the
0: UK left. I do think we're at a watershed moment, but I don't think a liberal centrist is going to radically reform it. I think, I think it's much more about returning it to sort of that rational norm, what is now constructed as some sort of normal business as usual. I think those signs are an indication of where they think we are in this moment. I mean, there's a one thing that is also quite important, and this is different than 2016, and, and I wouldn't be the first person to say this, but there's been a lot of political activism and a lot of political analysis and opposition towards addressing these issues. And I think that somehow the Democrats can see this, but they also, it may also be a way of addressing their left flank and I'd rather see and and, you know AOC's comment on this um, soon after the election about the need to address these systemic inequalities was vitally important I want to see I want to make sure that the centre and democratic establishment is not just making tokenistic gestures to reform or structural change because the structural change isn't just limited to talking the talk and beating Trump if I can just add to this, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be
2: cynical about about these changes, and I do really hope that they they carry on and they and they happen, even if you know, even in moderate ways. I think it would be beneficial to a lot of people. But but I have very little faith in in actually the Democrats with the the noise they've been making since uh, since the election. That that they will change anything radically. I think it's 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 nice that they are tackling some of these issues. But I think they have very little choice because I think they're very well aware that their victory wasn't as large as they expected it to be. That they were not able to count on some of the demographics that they wanted to count on and that instead they had to count on the demographics that, that, that rose up from the um, activist movements that Aaron was talking about, Black Lives Matter, the people who are on the left who want more radical change in society and it's these people who have probably carried Biden across the line and we'll find out more as, as more kind of opinion polls come out on this. And I think that kind of that is forcing the hand of Biden to kind of send some kind of signals to them in a way and he might, you know, he might do a few reforms but goes their way. And that's great, but I don't think that will be enough. And I think, again, it goes back to this... What really worries me is these talks about reconciliation. And, you know, it goes back to what Aaron was talking about, about, like, this kind of idea of, of reconciling the country, of having a nice centrist moderate who's going to be able to appeal to both the left and the right. But, you know... Should should we appeal to to the you know to the voters who have voted consciously for Trump in two thousand and twenty? I mean, in two thousand and sixteen, I could potentially see the argument being being that you know Trump was a clown, that he wouldn't be able to win, that he was faced with a candidate who was who had far more gravitas and things like that, and people voted for him because they didn't know what they were doing, you know. And you could say the same about Brexit, for example, you know. But the second time around, when people have seen the damage that's done to the lives of many people. I think that this is very problematic to want this reconciliation because people have voted for Trump the second time around, knowing full well what was happening. And of course, I mean, they, you know, there are issues with, with the, the media landscape in the US and misinformation and all of these kind of things. But, you know, we're talking about an increase in the vote here. And and that worries me in a way, because this reconciliation agenda, if it goes on, will be at the expense of more radical politics and more radical reforms that are necessary to kind of change things in the United States. And so it'll be interesting to see how the noise that's been made on on issues of inequalities, on issues of higher education, for example, Black Lives Matter, and so on, you know, will be watered down because of this process of reconciliation and trying to kind of appeal to people who are completely lost to, to any kind of progressive cause at the moment, at least until we do a lot more work in changing the narrative and changing the discourse.
1: Thinking about the rise of the populist right in the US in particular, it's a constantly moving terrain. And I I think you started writing your book before the election Donald Trump and before Brexit, I believe, as well. Now, the book touches on conspiracy theories such as birtherism and the white supremacist great replacement theory associated with Renaud Camus. But since the book was published, we've seen the rise of the notorious QAnon conspiracy theory, which deploys some very obviously anti-Semitic tropes, I recently spoke to Adam Getachew, and she was making the point that during the election campaign, Trump was significantly less vocal on the issue of immigration. And instead, there seems to have been this turn on his part towards conspiracies, whether centred on China and COVID-19, but also his quasi-endorsement of QAnon followers. So what's your view of QAnon and, and, and its significance to politics of both Trumpism, but also the far right more generally?
0: I guess one of the interesting things is, is that you have these discourses or narratives that everyone kind of congregates around and become the thing for a while. I don't want to start trying to explain QAnon, but it is something that has been circulating for a while. And it was, it seems to have taken a hold now, one could argue, around a period of crisis period of fear, uncertainty, et cetera, that it wasn't a specific narrative designed for if you take some of its arguments, about pedophilia and things like that, it, it doesn't seem to fit an ideological kind of a particular ideological trope or narrative that is, has been kind of, I guess, working for the, even the establishment, right. And establishment reactionaries for a long ter- time, such as anti-immigrant scapegoating, Islamophobia, or on the sort of further right, more anti-Semitism or overt anti-Semitism. But I think this brings together a number of conspiracy theories and tropes that can work in different ways for a reactionary movement. How long it'll last, I don't know. How how fringe it is versus how mainstream, I'm not sure. I guess it's not the only one he used. I think, I think that what... For me, the concern was more in the, in the first election, the way in which very much establishment, traditionally establishment reactionary tropes, racist, anti-immigrant ones, became so overt and so weaponized and directed at particular communities and used to mobilize particular constituencies was part of the mainstreaming. QAnon, for me, felt more like scattershot and I don't know how much life it has beyond this moment, but I think it somehow lends itself to the view of Trump as less dangerous and more ridiculous, which is also becomes part of the narrative as the establishment tries to kind of rid themselves of him in the context of the current defeat.
2: I think building on this,
0: what I, what I find quite
2: interesting about QAnon in a way, because again, I, I think I agree with, with, with what Aaron, Aaron says about how mainstream it really is and how long it's going to last. But I think what I find particularly worrying about it is that you have Trump pushing these ideas, pushing this kind of politics for months and for, for years as well. I mean, even what he was talking about in 2016 was, was completely outrageous for, for different manners. But then it seems to go down a rabbit hole where, where, it, where it falls into these kind of conspiracy theories. I mean, we had the, the, the Pizza Gate before we had other, others like that. And what I find fascinating and particularly dangerous is the fact that the whole Republican Party seems to have accepted that seems to have accepted that, not necessarily that, that QAnon is, is true or anything like that, but they've accepted that we can't go, they can't go against Trump. And during the campaign, they kind of stuck together, except for a few few voices. And even after the campaign, and, and you can see like, people still sticking to Trump, less and less, and, and some of them are resigning now because obviously you know, the boat's sinking. But, but I think what I find incredibly scary is how they're sticking with politics that are going massively wrong. And our system is not able to stop any of that. And I don't think we just see that that in the U.K., I think. I think we see that uh, in the U.S., sorry. That's an interesting stick of the tongue, because I was about to say, we also see that in the U.K. at the moment and to some extent in France. It's the fact that we're going down a more and more illiberal, conspiratorial kind of politics or or kleptocratic corruption and all of that. and, And no one calls it out it's in the open. It's in the open that things are blatantly wrong. They can be wrong blatantly factually, they can be wrong ethically, they can be wrong politically. We all see it. It's there. And yet we have an establishment around around these politicians who are in power, who protect certain interests, who just backs them up. And then, of course, when when they are done and when they are kicked out, then they just turn against them. You know, and we're seeing that, for example, with Dominic Cummings at the moment in the UK, right? Like, n- no one was speaking against Dominic Cummings until he, he decides to go, until he's kind of forced out very recently. And now everyone comes out like very brave MPs coming out saying like, oh, he's terrible, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, where were you a month ago? Where were you when he, when he went to Barnard Castle and, and, and probably caused like a breakdown in, in trust at a moment where we needed it most? You know, and you see these kind of things happening. We see that things are blatantly wrong whether factually, again, whether ethically, politically, and so on, and yet the people who should put a stop to this, who have a duty to put a stop to this, who should be accountable for these things, don't do anything. So that's what worries me most about these kind of, of conspiracies, in a way, is not so much the impact they have on the ground, and I do think they have an impact on the ground, but I think it's hard to know what the impact is, but I think the impact they have at the top, and these, these things can go up to the top, they're not contradicted, they're not stopped, they're not fought against anymore, and that's, I think, super super scary, really.
1: Another aspect of it, which seems rather frightening, is the shift in the way in which liberals seem to be positioned in a conspiracy theory like QAnon, as opposed to the way liberals would be, say, demonised in a slightly earlier period, again, say, the George W. Bush presidency, because... QAnon does seem to posit liberals, or, or certainly liberal elites, as not merely arrogant, out-of-touch characters or people who are solely concerned with uh, for themselves, but they're demonised in, in the literal sense of that word. These are people who are supposedly preying on children and so on. So how significant a shift do you think that is? Because obviously... There's a lot of talk about civil war in the United States, and obviously a lot of it is overblown, and we may never get to anywhere close to that. But the fact that it is being talked about does seem to be significant, and, and perhaps it does reflect some of the, the radicalization of the, of the discourse that something like QAnon represents.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one the civil war thing is, I mean that that really troubles me in the, in that going back to what I said earlier about the idea that the central division is between supporters of Trump and Democrats or Republicans or Democrats, and the way in which it sort of it builds on a, on a mythology that the reactionaries and the racists like they want to refight the civil war half the time. That's what the That's what the the monuments are about. This is like, you know, 1980s films about going back and refighting, Rambo refighting the Vietnam War. I think the thing about liberals is it's a bit, it's interesting and it's quite problematic because we don't know with conspiracy theories, the way they circulate and the way they absorb language and discourses, how much that is just an old liberal, perverted liberal media trope. Or we don't know which liberals are they talking about. You know, in the I always think in the US, they use the term liberal for the left. But if you look at the left they're talking about, they're actually more liberal than left. But one of the fascinating things for me is, is that Trumpism, and we talk about this a lot in the book, Trumpism and, and sort of the mainstreaming of racism and the far right has often been informed by and developed upon a liberal racist discourse and various liberal discourses and narratives, whether it be liberal defenses of free speech, whether it be liberal Islamophobia, whether it be you have an entire sort of culture war in which people who identify as classic liberals are fighting on the side of the right, of the reactionaries and the racists, defending their rights and opposing the left and calling the left fascist and censorious and a whole host of other and authoritarian. So what I find interesting about the idea that the liberal media is the problem is one, I think it, it may be accurate if you see that the people they're calling liberals, they also call socialists and they're conflating the two, but it really seems to discount the role of liberalism in this mainstreaming project and the sort of the, the defense and enabling of this, of Trumpism.
1: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month, and if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash to sign up. Thanks for listening.